Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. And today's hashtag Jill's Pin is a camera. And it'll become clear as we talk about the subject for today why I'm wearing a camera. Facts matter, truth matters, democracy matters, and there are few places where facts and truth matter more than in court and in voting. Many courtrooms across the country don't allow cameras, so the American people can't see the process. Does this matter? Is public opinion changed uh, in places where a camera was allowed? For instance, the trial of Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd, the murder trial of Alex Murdoch, and or even the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp case. In those cases, the American people got to see the facts being presented in front of a jury and watch the demeanor of a witness or witnesses in a way more powerful than mere reporting or courtroom sketches. To talk about cameras in the courtroom, the pros and cons, and how that could have played out if there had been a Dominion versus Fox trial, and what it would add to the E. Jean Carroll defamation and rape trials starting just after we record this episode of iGen Politics. And we're going to also talk about another subject, which is how much facts matter and how facts are being replaced with disinformation and how that's impacting democracy, civility between the political parties, and what can be done to change that. We have with us today a perfect person to talk about that, Angelo Carasone, who is the founder of Media Matters for America which is a progressive research and information center dedicated to comprehensively monitoring, analyzing, and correcting, most importantly for me, correcting conservative misinformation in the U.S. media. I've had the pleasure of being on air on MSNBC with Angelo, and he is a very important and credible voice on this topic. So thank you, Angelo, for being with us today. No, thank you for having me. So something that fascinates and interests both Jill and I a lot is um, cameras in the courtroom. And um, there, there was a piece that, that said most states allow cameras in trial courts in some form, depending on the interpretation of um, individual state court rules, statutes, or uh, judicial canons. And typically, it seems like a, a specific request is received. Case and then the presiding judge has the discretion to allow some type of still or video access. So I, I'm wondering. I mean, let let's maybe start with the arguments for and against having cameras in courtrooms. I mean, look, there's a lot of reasons for it. I mean, uh, uh, putting aside some of the basic ones are just like privacy, especially if it, if it's high profile. Um, and there's some ways around that. You know, when, with you know protecting the jurors and that kind of a thing. I mean, the biggest argument against it, especially in a trial court, it cuts both ways. It could be that somebody would showboat um, because they would think that they are, you know, they have an opportunity that there's cameras. They think they might get more TV or whatever. So they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna showboat. Um, or or the flip side, which is that some people are most people are camera shy. Um, and it may be harder for you to talk, engage, if you think that there's, um, uh, if you're just one of those people, especially if you don't know who's watching and you know it, it, you immediately assume it's gonna be broadcast live and it will affect people. And um, that, that is a, a very foundational argument is that, and then obviously the things that sort of layer on top of it um, is that they, that especially in more high profile cases or one where there's a lot of media interest, is the concern that it could turn into a, a circus that, you know, when you start to generate attention, attention, attention is sort of self-generating that once you get a spark and it starts, it actually builds on itself. 
So then more and more attention comes to it, right? I mean, look how much attention the Gwyneth Paltrow trial got. And it's because there were cameras, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, if there weren't cameras, people would have been interested, but it would have been a lot harder for it to take over so much of TikTok and other social media because you wouldn't have had those individual instances. So attention starts to breed attention. And if you're running a trial and you're a judge, that's always a, a, a concern is that there'll be something that will give um, that will give attention to it. And so that's that's a factor, uh, at least initially. And those are sort of the arguments for again. So obviously there's transparency arguments, which is a really big one. And, you know, trials historically in the United States have, you know, before there was TV and lots of shows, they used to be entertainment. Um, for people, people would go to the courthouse to watch trials. That's how thing as part of how it became a part of our culture in a way is that people would go and watch. Um, so there's a, there is a, you know, there's a big argument for, which is that you could go to the courthouse and see this. It's not closed. You wouldn't be precluded. And we have technology, technology now that makes it accessible. So this is just an extension of what is a pretty standard tradition. That's a big argument for is the transparency piece. But um, that's kind of the debate in a nutshell. I mean, usually it gets fact intensive and everybody has very specific considerations. In this case with Fox, you know, they were very interested in not having video uh, for very specific reasons that are independent of the larger debate. But that's pretty much what it boils down to. Okay. And we will talk about the Fox case and because they did argue against and were they prevailed. They kept yeah. cameras out. Now, there, it ended up there was no trial. But had there been a trial, there would not have been cameras. And right. yet we can look at cases like, uh, I think Victor already mentioned, the trial of Derek Chauvin for murdering George Floyd. We can yep. look at the Alex Murdoch trial where it was broadcast. And the ability for people, and by the way, because so many trials are allowed to have cameras, there is a court TV channel that broadcasts all day trials and yeah. people watch all day. So there is an entertainment uh, value. With, Pardon with me? The, it's not during COVID with the uh, occasional cat's bomb uh, for, for the Zooms. Right, exactly. So I think there is a difference for me as someone who's obviously been in court uh, as a participant, not as a, a viewer, but it's very different how you perceive the testimony if you read a transcript versus if you see the witness and how they physically move, what what do they do with their hands? How, their face like this or is it like this? It, it makes a big difference in how you interpret the truth and credibility of any particular witness. And I think it makes a big difference um, to be able to actually see the trial. Um, and I think one of the arguments that has, you know, this goes back to when I first started practicing law when cameras were these big, gigantic things. Nowadays, there's a little hole that nobody would even notice where the camera is. Yeah. No one's playing to the camera because they don't know. They just totally forget about it. And, of course, juries are kept out of view. That happened uh, many times in, in trials, never has there been a breach of that where a juror was seen who wasn't supposed to be seen. The witness, the lawyers, the judge, they are able to be seen. So I'm, I personally am very much in favor of it. Uh, do you have an opinion one way or the other as to whether you, know, you think it would help with transparency? I think that um, I, I'm in favor of cameras in the courtroom. I think that on balance there, that all the reasons that you stated, I think the technology has also 
eliminated a lot of like the stage fright factors, which I would have been much more sympathetic yeah. to in the past. Um, the, the big camera right there, it, it, it has changed and that makes it a lot easier. And because cameras are so much more accessible now, people are much more comfortable with cameras too. Um, you, know, you go to an ATM, there's cameras. You People have cameras on their doorbells. Like people, it's just changed. Um, the so that's sort of my and my biggest reason for why I'm in favor of it, it sort of ties in with your saying and one of the stats that always sticks with me is that um and obviously there's different analysis of this but this one I think comes from Harvard Business School and it's that 70 percent of communication is nonverbal and yes. um and so you know when you think about that in the context of how much richer a transcript could be just trying to understand what took place cr assessing credibility all these things get factored in when you can look at how the person interacts, responds, what their face looks like, and how they're even just engaging with the question or their, their answer to the question. It just feels like that overrides almost everything else. And um, I also think that because so many courtrooms, independent of whether or not they allow cameras, um, in the wake of COVID, have changed their protocols and policies to allow for dial-ins. Um, that's a very standard practice now, even in courtrooms that don't have cameras, it's sort of this remnant of, of, of sort of the COVID era where basically right. most places now have access, you can hear it. So once they, once you can call in and listen to the hearing, it becomes a lot harder from my perspective to say and rationalize why you wouldn't also have cameras accessible and available. Good point. Very good point. It's, um, in terms of what we've seen, that's the other thing mm -hmm. is that all these arguments, you know, you can go back to 2000, 2015, but we have seen trials successfully run without becoming a circus that are um, high profile cases. And we have two coming up um, right now. We have the E. Jean Carroll case. We have the New York AG and the New York DA, at least those coming up. And so Imagine having cameras in the E. Jean Carroll case where the defendant, Donald J. Trump, is accused of not only defamation, but of rape. And if you could see E. Jean Carroll and judge her credibility and then view Donald Trump and his credibility, I think it would make a difference. Do you think, A, that that would make a difference? But more importantly, do you think people from the right wing are going to see any of that in the same way that none of the Fox viewers know about the settlement because Fox is not reporting it and they do not listen to channels other than Fox. So how do you get the message across to people for whom, you know, Victor started this saying facts matter and they do, but facts only matter if you know them. And if your channel is not giving you the facts, you're operating under misinformation. What do you yeah, think? I think I think that the first part is is significant that people respond to uh, things that are high valence or emotional or intense, and I think people have a it, if we're gonna have, people need to see that and reading it or even even getting secondhand reporting about that won't have the same emotional resonance um, and it won't get people to care enough about it. And that's, that's a, that's a disservice to the story to, to it's, it's a disservice. And especially when they're judging that in the contrast of the credibility of who's being accused there. And it's a, it's a big issue. And I do think it, in this case, not having cameras, there will be a disservice. And in the broader p point, which is then those are that video is important. Even if somebody's not watching in real time, 
because that's how most of people get when they get information are getting it either through the news directly or they're getting it through their social circles, either through mm -hmm. online or even just in conversation. People are just talking about things. Um, some people are more news followers than other, and you all, everybody has that friend that's much more in touch. And they, that's how people learn. That's how we sort of see the world. We get narratives, we get snippets. And in order for things to penetrate into those bubbles, you need the, the collateral, the pieces that make that story. Mm -hmm. And it's much less likely to get picked up if there's no video, because people need to see the video to, to put it on local news. Um, that's also important. Uh, it's, it's to get additional pickup, saturation. Without that, it's not going to have the, the secondary and, and third stories around it. You'll get a, a little bit of a, of a very, very dry description, and it won't, add, it won't carry. And that, that matters. And my, my clearest example of that is um, we had a little bit of an, an illustration of this with Alex Jones, who's sort of a conspiracy theorist who was pushing the theory that the children that died in the Sandy Hook shooting didn't, weren't actually killed, that they, were, that they were crisis actors and their parents and their families were all faking it. Um, all of the information uh, about him sort of lying about it and misinforming had been established in writing and depositions well before his trial, but his trial had cameras. Um, and there was a moment where he says to the, where he basically, where everything unravels and it becomes clear that he knew he was lying and did it anyway. Um, and he says to the, uh, he, but he says to the lawyer at one point, oh, there, you know, this is your Perry Mason moment. He, he recognizes he's busted. He <laughs> says, this is your Perry Mason moment. And, but the thing is that, that those video clips, they did penetrate. Um, a lot of his, his audience saw that because it, it was too viral for it to be ignored. Yeah. And it really weakened his, not just, it, it weakened his own, credibility with his audience, which is what was part of where his destructive power came from. And it, I think it did tell a definitive story about Jones and really eliminated a lot of what could have continued to be a one source of conspiracies, attacks. He's really lost his, his punch as a result of that. And we would not have had that effect without the video um, because we, we know that. We saw, he, we had the words for months and it never had the same resonance until it was in himself actually acknowledging that he knew that he was basically making it up. I, I just want to say for Victor's generation and uh, others listening, Perry Mason is a, um, <laughs> a different Perry Mason existed that, that Angelo is referring to. In Perry Mason, every single trial ended with him catching someone on the stand saying, no, it was me. It was me. Your client is innocent. And <laughs> Lawyers, I, I did have a Perry Mason moment when I was cross-examining Rosemary Woods. It's the only time in modern history that I think anyone's had a real Perry Mason moment. <laughs> and I have been watching the new Perry Mason, which does not have, I mean, first of all, he starts out as an investigator. He becomes a lawyer, but he's not having Perry Mason moments, even though he's Perry Mason. So that's what Perry Mason means is catching someone red-handed on the stand and freeing your client. So, and anyway. I've heard of I'm I'm young I'm young but I've heard of the reference before I have not watched any of the um, Oh you should they were really I, terrific they were highly recommend and, yeah. they keep Yeah well, there, there's nothing that cha they're good and and some of the characters are the same uh, Berger is the same prosecutor and uh, Drake is the same investigator and it, it it's definitely you should watch it they are very different people now uh, than they were in this um Obviously, this is a prequel in a sense because he's anyway. Sorry for the diversion to Perry Mason, but he's one of my favorite characters. 
Well, Angela, I mean, as you're talking about this, I, I have to wonder, because we're living in this age of social media, and I think, like you said, when, when you're talking about the Alex Jones moment, I mean, that moment couldn't have gone viral without social media, but at the same time... Yeah. Do you cons- do you have any concerns that if we bring cameras into the courtroom that it could be used um, in a bad way? And are there any instances where you think cameras in the courtroom have hurt more than they help have helped? I, it's I mean there may be outliers where it it has been a detriment. I, I struggle to find that. I really think that I'm always in favor of of transparency, especially at that level. I think that it it even if there are examples where it didn't go well or maybe had some externalities, we benefit from that. Um, And in an environment precisely because of social media, I think even more so because it's too easy to manipulate people with commentary, with small distorted segments. And if you can't find a way to pick it up uh, or, um, or to, or to counteract it, then that, then that sticks. And that there's nothing better than the source. I, I think. And when you have, the raw material, you actually get more people engaged on it. And that means that you have a better chance of getting at least a, a good or positive story out there. So it's tough for me to find, to, to really, to say, oh yeah, there's a really instance where I can find that to be a detriment or I would not be a, a, a fan. I could make it, I could see a case in individual instances where the circumstances are, are highly explosive, where somehow a camera early on could prejudice, could be so prejudicial or so concerning that could blow up. I, I could definitely see that argument. Um, but on balance, I, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty absolutist on this one. I think it I think it's a net win, and I think the moment you give access, you've already created this this, this sort of open door. You might as well flesh it out because there's a lot that you could do to distort the audio. Um, so unless somebody's saying they don't support cameras and they're also willing to take away audio and they're also willing to close the court doors and not let somebody record it. My concern would be that it's too easy for someone to manipulate a storyline or to push push a false piece of a false narrative out there with just a little bit of information. So I'd rather, and I, again, part of it is I'm biased, and I recognize my bias here. My literally, my job is to find misinformation and correct it. And so, and so, when I am dealing with combating misinformation, I recognize that I need as much good information as possible to put together a composite to fight back against it, especially if that misinformation is already spread. And so when I think about that in the context of this question and this conversation, uh, I don't know how I would challenge a false narrative if somebody had a small snippet or a piece of audio that they've misrepresented um, without having not just the full audio, but but the video. That would allow me to contextualize it and to push back even more effectively. I mean, I hear the argument, but I have not seen a case presented where it has hurt. And I think in, you know, Maybe there's a purient interest in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case that would never have caught on if there wasn't video. And who cares about that, really? Um, and the, the Gwyneth Paltrow case, same thing. But in in cases where it comes down to, will society support the conviction of a police officer? I think it makes a difference that everybody got to see the same evidence the jury saw so they could support the jury's verdict. Mm-hmm. But there is a, an argument that's being made differently in appellate courts, particularly the Supreme Court. And surprising to me, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan have expressed some hesitation about cameras in the Supreme Court, even though, and you've pointed this out, Angelo, is that there's now audio available because of during COVID, we started being able to hear and then they let people dial in. So you can now hear 
any Supreme Court argument live. And um, I I, I think it was Sotomayor said um, that she thought that I think the temptation to grandstand in front of a camera is so huge. But, you know, if they're going to grandstand in front of the Supreme Court, that's a losing thing for your clients. So you're not going to do that. I, I don't understand why the Supreme Court is so adamant against cameras, even though they're allowing video um, audio. Yeah, I, I always find that grandstanding argument. Uh, I understand why people say it. And but I always find it to be a little bit of like a logical fallacy, kind of like the slippery slope argument. Like, well, if you start here, then it'll just go everywhere. It's like that doesn't always that's just it's too easy of an argument that doesn't actually get to the heart of it, because there's always something that immediately contradicts it, which is that there's audio already. We people in yeah. fact, you have more of a temptation to grandstand if you didn't have video because you recognize that you if you were a grandstander, you'd recognize that yeah. the only way you're going to get the attention you desire it, with the audio that exists is to actually go overboard such that you could overcome the hump of not having that video. Um, Because TV, for example, will pick up audio, but it has to be really good without the video. It has to be really good, right? And so so I guess there's like, I see the irresistible temptation, but I also then look at the landscape and say, but we have evidence of this. Um, And we know that if somebody is a grandstander, they have their opportunity. Um, You know, even people like Scalia, you know, you could tell sometimes in the past, this is, he was a justice, but before there was live, you could dial in, but it was still recorded. There were definitely very clearly parts where you could tell he was performing, but it was, dis- yeah. but he, but it was recorded and he, and it would, but even then the limits, the ceiling was low and it was part of his overall sort of approach um, to the bench. And it would have probably would have done that even if there wasn't a recording there. So yeah, that's my take on it. I think that we would, we have enough evidence to back it up. And the other part, that I think often gets overlooked, especially at the appellate level um, and, and in trial level too, is that the record matters. And that that going back in time, especially for, for things of civil importance um, or civic importance, that going back and being able to watch it in real time, especially with some hindsight, is, is extremely important. Like not everything is real time. We live in such a real time moment that we forget that the historical record has incredible value as well. And the last thing I'd say is that I think in some ways it, 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 it things are wobbly now. I recognize how precarious that our moment in, in, in sort of, of uh, our democracy feels. And, uh, but I, I still on balance, like trust us to kind of get it right, especially the bigger the crowd. I feel like if you appeal, I'm a New Yorker. So I think to some extent there's a little bit of trust in a crowd. And I think when you, people know they're watching, they're more likely to, to do the right thing. And, yes. or at least when there's a record. And if I'm a juror, uh, I'm thinking about, wait, I don't get to do this with invisibility. There are consequences, not just for myself, but for for the future. And now there's a lot of people watching. And you know, everyone behaves a little different when they know there are people watching. And, you, yeah. and typically, they tend to do the right thing when they know people are watching. Right. Oh, right. That's an interesting point of view. And the American Bar Association has, for a long time, been studying this issue. And I assume we'll continue to look at it with the evidence of actual usage and they'll evaluate how valuable to the public perception of the outcome of the murder of George Floyd, George, George Floyd, uh, how much was it impacted by being able to actually see the witnesses? I think they're going to find that it has helped much more than it could possibly ever hurt. But Without maybe it's t- time to shift. Um, Victor, do you want to start in the next 
Yeah, topic? well, I mean, we mentioned your um, organization at the intro, and you just mentioned um, your goal of uh, exposing right-wing misinformation. Can you talk to us more about what you're doing to expose right-wing disinformation, misinformation? So, uh, so Media Matters is a media watchdog organization, and there's about 112 of, uh, people on staff, and we live monitor 60,000 hours of television, radio, podcasts, Wow. Uh, uh, a year. And then we archive and analyze about a million and a half more hours on top of that. And the reason I start there is because if your goal is to identify misinformation and, and sort of combat it, the best way to do that is early detection and early warning, because the more misinformation spreads, the harder it becomes to, to fight it because it's, then you're correcting something that's already been consumed and you're trying to change people's minds. And, you know, you mentioned social media before. That's a big part of this is that when something sort of starts from, uh, or it feels like a misinformation campaign's emerging, or that there's a false narrative being drumbeat and it's starting to spread. If you can identify it, get a sense of where it's going, you can do a couple of things. You can one, alert the news media that this is happening. They're an important gatekeeper. So one example of that is when uh, critical race theory was first becoming sort of this hot controversial topic before it really seeped into the zeitgeist, we had noticed this trend where people were being re interviewed as concerned parents, when in fact they weren't even parents at all and were actually paid Republican mm -hmm. operatives. And being able to go to newsrooms and say, hey, you actually need, I know it seems ridiculous, but you actually actually now need to verify whether or not they're parents, because we've noticed this trend of operatives being sent to these events specifically designed to launder their talking points through the, through reporting. One way that you can help prevent misinformation from spreading, right, is being able to detect it, then alert individuals against it. Um, or in the case of, say, uh, uh, Facebook or, or social media, there was a major documentary early in COVID called Plandemic that was extremely destructive and went super viral. Um, and it was all sort of based on this idea that um, COVID either didn't exist, but to the extent that it did exist, it was all designed to actually to get people to take certain precautions so they could kill them. It was, it was pretty bad. It was widely consumed. There was a very quick follow-up to that documentary that was coming out. Um, and we had noticed that the way that they had developed a series of workarounds so that it could go similarly viral on social media, being able to tell Facebook and YouTube the cheats that these outlets were planning on using to get their content to spread again uh, meant that they could prevent it from spreading in the first place. So people know about the first pandemic, but they don't know about pandemic two because we were able to get ahead of it. So that's where that early detection yeah. comes in. And then the other part is then when you can't correct it, when it's already spread, can you actually start to reshape the narrative either by showing that it's the fruit of the poison tree, that this idea, this falsehood came from a really, really bad source. This came from 4chan, which is a, you know, a really extreme message board community, or this came literally from the daily stormer, which is a white nationalist publication. Being able to show where something came from is an easy way to get people to say, wait a minute, I didn't, that's, I, that's, ooh, I don't know if I want to believe that because I don't trust that source. Um, and then also being able to shame the news media sometimes when they, perhaps intentionally or unintentionally or, uh, you know, amplify some of these falsehoods. So big picture, that's kind of what we really focus on is, is how quickly can we identify emerging false narratives and do what we can to mitigate their spread as much as possible. And you do a good job of it. Um, and I, I, I have a question about how the right is able to peddle the stuff they put out there and how viewers come to believe it and how it seems to me that, you know, the Democrats supposedly have Hollywood supporting them, some of the best communicators ever. 
And yet, you know, MAGA was like, wow, that's such a condensed version of something that communicates and holds people. Why have they been able to do it and Democrats haven't? So there's two reasons, um, two big reasons. One is about the communications itself. One is about the structures of communication. So on the communications itself, um, there's like, obviously there's multiple ways people think about it. The way I think about it is there's three ways that you can talk to people. You can talk to people's guts, their hearts, or their heads. So when you have a message or a story, you're only talking to one of those three parts. What's their, their gut is people's intuitions, what they really feel. Their heart obviously is their heart, their feelings, um, or their head. Uh, if you go and look, most Democrats' communications are to people's heads. Yeah. Um, and uh, the rest of it is to people's hearts. Almost none of it is visceral. It's gut level. If you actually look at Republican communications, especially right-wing communications, the overwhelming majority of it, almost all of it, is to people's guts. Um, they don't, none of it is to people's heads, which means that you are able to capitalize on what feels like instinct. And instinct and reflex are powerful forces. Yeah. I mean, that is what drives us. Um, and so... Just big picture, where they communicate is actually very, very different. Mm -hmm. um, and that does give the right wing major advantages. And then the second part is the structures that they use. And, you know, you mentioned Hollywood before. And the thing that I always go back to is like a lot of this started, you know, we've always had pockets of right wing conspiracy theorists, extremists. That's a part of America. Um, what we've never had, though, until the 90s was a really well-structured, I mean, there was a couple moments like Father Coughlin, which was a sort of a demagogue, you know, way back. But, you know, in the nineties, what happened is talk radio, uh, this guy, Rush Limbaugh really took over and then had a yeah. bunch of others and Fox News um, sort of created a, a right-wing media apparatus that it's, it's not, it's so hard to explain how significant it is, but the two stats that I would point out to is that um, 2020, 2022, last election, was the first time in a quarter century where Rush Limbaugh was not the single largest get out the vote operation in the country. He had 22 million listeners every day. Wow. 22 million listeners. I mean, that is like one out of every one out of every 12 Americans, 15 Americans at one point in the country were listening to Rush Limbaugh every day. Wow. Like, so if you think about a lie or a narrative or a message, that is incredible capacity to be able to disseminate it and spread it. With one, and that's only one of their apparatuses. So the effect of that is that if you look at social media, one of the things we track, and it's always a stat that I watch very closely, is if you look at all consumption as a pie chart, on any given day, about 45 to 60% of it, um, people are consuming from right-leaning sources. About 20 to 30% is actually coming from news, national and local combined, um, which is already shows you just the scope and scale of the right. And then the rest is left leaning. Um, and that is, on, so basically on any given day, a bigger slice of the pie is coming from sort of the right wing infrastructure, which is talk radio, Fox news, uh, you know, and to some extent this online ecosystem that they have. And that gives them the ability to project those messages and also amplify falsehoods. So how long will it take for Democrats to reach what the right is doing? Because you mentioned, I mean, it's terrifying, but they've been really good at this because they've spent decades building this up. But where is the Democratic side of this? And are we, when, when do you think we'll even reach that point, if at all? I think that, you know, one, Democrats will never, there's two things that are, that are, are different. Part of it is that Democrats are a coalition. They're not a cult. Um, and that does make things a lot harder when it comes to building these types of ecosystems is that they don't just want something. They don't want to be echoed back 
something that they feel every day. Um, they actually want information and they, and so there's just, there are some differences in terms of what they're looking for, like consumption. Um, Big picture, I don't think that it will ever happen. I don't think that Democrats will ever build a, a similar ecosystem um, for a lot of reasons. But what I do think is it, eventually they'll get better at messaging. They have no choice. I mean, they have to. Uh, and you can see pockets of this. Like There are definitely communicators like Governor Bashir in Kentucky, who does speak to people's hearts very effectively. Yeah. Um, and if you listen to his messaging, I mean, he is a, a Democrat in a fairly red state who is, even on some of these culture war issues, has consistently come down, um, uh, has taken the hard political choice. And, it, and a lot of that is because he uses his own ecosystem, which then helps him project his message, but also his communication is really good. Governor Whitmer as well is another example. So I think there'll be... We, we will develop a new bench of communicators and that is a, that is happening. Um, definitely happening. There are clearly pockets of it. Structurally, we'll never be able to build anything um, even close to what the right wing has until we deal with some of the cheating. They cheat a lot. You know, the dirty secret about talk radio, you know, even though Rush Limbaugh had 20, you know, 20 million listeners, the company that owned that has Rush Limbaugh station and Sean Hannity, who's now one of the top talkers and a bunch of others, they're $20 billion in debt. You know, Air America, which was sort of the, the liberal left-leaning analog at one point on talk radio, had a few million dollars in debt, and then they went bankrupt and shut down. But yet somehow these right-wing talkers can owe $20 billion, $20 billion, and they still get to, they still, they're still on air. So part of it, and Fox News, you know, fleeces every American for a certain amount of money in their cable bill. Um, they don't need any commercials because of how much they take. So they have some structural advantages that allow them to get away with a product that's not really commercially viable. Um, so I think big picture, Democrats will never have the space to effectively, a fair, a fair fight in terms of communicating until we deal with some of the cheating that the right wing does. And they've done that through working the refs. And yeah. some of these systems need to be market accountable. And uh, I just, yeah, that's basically, I, I think, the, the most important thing out of the gate. So you mentioned um, about Fox getting paid by everybody who subscribes <clears throat> to cable. And I think it was on your website, if it wasn't, you, you can tell me, that there was some um, group trying to get people to write to their cable companies to say, yeah. I don't want Fox News and I don't want to pay for it, take it off my cable and take the percentage that you are charging me for that off my bill. Is that yeah, something that's, right. that's on your website? T talk about there is that. A, yeah, there's a site called nofoxfee.com. And if you have cable or know people that have cable, they should sign up. It's, they're not going to get asked for like the donation or anything like that, or it gets spammed. All it does is say, you're, this is your cable provider. This is when their contract is going to come up. Here's how you contact them. Here are the steps you take and what to say. Um, and basically, part of the reason why the right has some of these advantages is, is not just in what they communicate, which creates a fervency, but how they have very wisely leveraged that fervency to, to sort of cheat the system a little bit. And, you know, Fox news is, so they always talk about the free market and, um, but Fox news is the only commercial media company that does not need a single commercial. Um, they don't need a single ad on their TV and, and on their channel. And part of the reason for that is that they're, they take so much money from everybody's cable bill um, each 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 uh, each month, and even if you never watch Fox, you are you're not just paying for Fox. Yeah. I think the thing to keep in mind here is that 
they're probably getting paid maybe two and a half times market rate. Um, and if they had to pay market rate, Fox News would not be a profitable channel right now, which is part of the reason they're able to do what they do, right? Is they get to operate to some extent with impunity um, because they don't have to think about, oh, how are we going to get advertisers back? And uh, I, you know, it would be a much tougher for them to push some of the things they push if they had to compete on a level playing field. Have they lost advertisers because of the um, discovery, not because of the discovery, but because of what discovery in the Dominion case revealed in terms of, yes, we're lying. Yes, we know we're lying. Yes, we disrespect our audience. Yes, we think our guests are idiots and stupid and liars, but it's what our audience wants to hear. So we're going to give it. Did any um, advertisers drop them? Um, so it's tough because Fox doesn't have a lot of advertisers left, believe it or not. Um, really? Most big advertisers have left Fox. And just to give an example of that, Fox is Fox News's fourth largest advertiser. Um, that is not something any other TV channel, especially cable news channel, like CNN is not CNN's fourth largest advertiser. They don't pay to advertise on their channel. Fox has lost so many advertisers um, because of their content. I mean, it is fairly extreme. Yeah that what they rely very heavily on is um, selling pillows, uh, a uh, powdered vegetables uh, in a pill, and, um, and then Fox. And it, with those three things that I just mentioned combined, basically account for almost 40% of all the ads on the channel. Um, it's really staggering. So what did happen though, and it's very clear to me that Fox was worried to your question, um, usually there's an event that takes place uh, in the end of the month, beginning of May, where a news channel or any TV channel goes called the upfronts and they say, Hey, look how good our channel is. And they bring all the advertisers together and all the people from the advertising industry and they make a pitch and then they sell a bunch of ads for the following year. And it's a really, it's a really big party. It lasts for a whole week. It's a, it's like a big thing. Um, Fox news didn't, they pulled out of the event this year and instead they did a, a meeting at Fox's headquarters. Uh, a month ago. And obviously what they were trying to do was avoid having to try to pitch Fox News to advertisers in the midst of all of this Dominion stuff that was unfolding. Um, and so the short answer is not many advertisers left because there's not any to leave. Certainly my pillow is not going to drop Fox and Fox isn't going to drop Fox. Um, but I think significantly some companies have uh, scaled back their buys, and and additionally, mm. you know, there's been some waffling with these these cable carriers that have now begun to think about whether or not they're going to continue to to pay Fox the current rates that they pay them. Mm. Wow, very interesting. So we we want to get into um, the Dominion settlement with Fox, and um, particularly from your perspective as brought in misinformation, do you think that this settlement will do anything to tamp down the lies and? Will Fox viewers ever even know about this? Fox viewers will know that there was a settlement. Um, they won't know anything about it. They won't even know the number. Um, so Fox mentioned there was a settlement uh, a few times on air, uh, very briefly. They didn't discuss any of the details. They didn't even discuss the substance, really, uh, right. that you know it was about voting. Uh, they didn't really get into that. And they... The only thing that they did say is that it was going to disappoint a bunch of the liberals in the media. And um, that's how they framed it. They framed it as a that the settlement was just a disappointment to, to the left. And so Fox's audience won't really hear about this. Um, 
And it sounds wild to think that, but you know, we even did a few sort of like just to get a sense of, of, of this. Most of the people who are really diehard Fox viewers, they really do live in sort of an information bubble. And you know, to the extent they've ever heard about any of this Dominion stuff, they just kind of see it as a, as a George Soros communist conspiracy. They think that they really think that Hugo Chavez, who was, you know, who ran Venezuela for a while, was somehow engaged in a conspiracy to um, build a machine that was going to flip votes to Democrats so that the Democrats could get elected and bring communists into the country. Like, I mean, they... So they don't really know about Dominion as much as the story behind it. They they yeah. really they still believe that, and they're that's not going to change unless they're confronted with um with Fox hosts actually saying, oh yeah, this isn't true, and we knew they lied, uh, and we said it anyway. They're they're not gonna that's not going to change. And worse, I think that because this is behind them, what Fox is going to do now is actually get worse for a, a while. They 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 really do need to they think about it like this. For about a year, they've been kind of, believe it or not, tame. And um, they've tried to, they've been walking a fine line around what's going to happen with this jury, what's going to happen at trial, are we going to end up having to you know, have video? Like they've really tried to straddle these competing interests. And at the same time, they've also been sort of torn between Trump and Ron DeSantis, who are the two leading Republican primary figures. So there's this very weird tension there. But, but basically, they haven't been feeding their audience the red meat that they so desire. And now, because this is behind them, they're going to quickly turn around, give them the rarest of meat, because they want to rebuild that relationship with their audience, um, because they need to. And that is that is their primary goal right now, is how can we repair the bonds of our audience so that they don't go elsewhere? There was a really interesting um, analysis that I recently read, and I don't know if you can shed more light on this, that basically said... Even if Fox tries to repair its, I don't know, credibility, its relationship with the audience, that the, those who leave don't actually go to more middle um, kind of right. news sources. They, they go to more extreme news sources like Breitbart yeah. or OAN, Newsmax. Whereas on the left, if if they leave MSNBC or, or CNN, they go to more neutral news sources. Is, is that right. true? And can you talk more about kind of it's why It's totally true. Yeah, it's totally true. Um, it is a one of the things that happened, and it is a byproduct. It's it's an effect of this like sort of social media environment. Is that if you think of the way that information moves through the news landscape, um, it pretty much was a very steady like a food chain. It would go from smaller to bigger outlets up until it reached the the biggest outlets, and it's been very consistent for for decades. What happens with social media? is that you don't need, the gatekeepers are not the only ones that have the ability to, to direct a message now. And so uh, you could actually leapfrog all of the, of the, the, the news outlets, the information outlets, um, and you can spread a story very fast if, it, if you get the right people retweeting, reposting, sharing it, spreading it, and you never have to get a Fox or anyone to write about it. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what's happening is that what Trump did very effectively for himself early on was find a way to reach the Fox News audience without having to always go through Fox News. And that gave him a lot of power. And now that, you know, obviously there's so many of these alternative social media outlets and the, the short of it is that Fox viewers can get access to content from other right-wing figures um, that's not necessarily filtered through Fox. And so they hear these things and they want more of it and they expect Fox to give it to them. And when Fox doesn't, they look elsewhere for it. And there is this sort of resorting that's happening in the right-wing media landscape, right? Where there's 
this for the first time in a while, an opportunity for other hosts, other shows, other networks to actually grow their audiences. Um, and so they're using this as a moment to say, oh, you shouldn't, you know, I can tell you the real story about, about Anthony Fauci if you come on over and watch my, you know, and, that, and that's what's happening is that COVID gave them a chance to push stories. You know, Fox was not out of the gate for months, for example, saying that Anthony Fauci was um, actually injecting robots into people's bodies because he made a secret deal with Bill Gates. Or that, that was a story that was out elsewhere. And Fox lost a bunch of their audience because they wanted to hear more about, you know, about that conspiracy. And they started to filter away. And then all of a sudden you notice Fox started getting much meaner to Anthony Fauci, right? Um, and it's the same thing here, which is that because their audience is getting a small taste. I know if you're a Fox viewer, you're watching Fox anywhere between six and eight hours a day. Uh, you're really consuming a lot of it. You're not just getting a little, you're getting like the full day's meal. So if you're getting a, if you're online and you're seeing all these conspiracies pop up, right? Oh, oh, you mean, oh, Joe Biden brought Hunter Biden to Ireland because he's doing a secret deal. I want to hear more about this. And Fox isn't talking about it. Well, let me look and see where else I can get it. And that's what's happening is that social media has given a bunch of even worse entities the ability to leapfrog these traditional right wing sources they're giving a their, the audience a small taste of um, sort of more extreme ideas. And if Fox doesn't cater to that, those audience members will go and seek it out. So do you think it's hopeless that there's no way that Fox will learn a lesson from even paying three quarters of a billion dollars while, I have to point out, still facing the Smartmatic, which is a $2.7 billion lawsuit? and multiple others as well. I mean, is there any way that they've learned something from having to settle a case for three quarters of a billion? billion, billion I think yeah. that, I don't think it's hopeless. Um, I don't think that Fox will change by this alone. And I never did. I never was, I always saw this as the, that in order to change something like Fox and the Murdochs, you really have to have a cascade of consequences. It can't just be one thing or two really big things. It would need to be a cascade. It would need to be multiple settlements, multiple lawsuits, shareholder litigation, um, and the types of pressure that really hit their bottom line. Because you know, if Fox is successful at getting their, their cable increases, just even a, a portion of what they're trying to get these increases for, that's the at least worth $900 million them for one year, almost $3 billion for the terms of the contract. That's, that's, that's nothing. So you know, it easily offsets um, what they had to pay. But so I don't think it's hopeless, but I do think it requires a lot of other consequences to line up to force a change in behavior. But I do think Fox will change in one way. I think that they will be much more careful about what they write down. And um, and what they communicate. I don't <laughs> I don't think well, they'll be that's... writing down as many things as they have been. Um, for I think for sure that is going to change. Or they'll use one of those apps that makes it disappear, uh, like the old-fashioned invisible ink. You write it down, yeah, and then it goes away because that's right. Yeah, I I I think that is uh, as a trial lawyer probably what they should be advised. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. We really appreciate it. Um, you've made us smarter, and we appreciate that. I hope our audience has learned a lot about cameras in the courtroom and about disinformation that surrounds us and what we need to do to combat it. Thank, Thank you, you very Angela. much for having me. 
That was such an interesting episode. And I mean, it was chilling hearing him talk about just how long, I mean, Fox News viewers watch Fox News every day. It's like, yeah. I can never imagine spending eight hours in front of the TV screen, but they are drawn and glued to the TV screen. And it's like, you know, and they're getting more and more extreme. Um, and that's terrifying. But well, hopefully- yeah, I, I, th- I think a lot of that is in the same way that I listen to MSNBC all day. Mm-hmm. It's background. It's uh, I, I'm someone who can work even better with noise in the background. Yeah. And so I keep it on and my ear picks up when something mm-hmm. new is said, because, of course, if you listen all day, the stories don't change. Um, right. And so it's only if I'm. Oh, yeah, that sounds different uh, that I actually stop and watch and listen. And yep. uh, I, I, it's very important that people be informed. I am a big believer that facts matter and that you have to pay attention to the sources of media that give you truth and facts. And I'm sorry that, um, and maybe we can talk a little more about this. I'm sorry that there wasn't a trial, but I don't think it would have made a difference because Fox wasn't going to carry the trial anyway. And so Fox viewers weren't going to, even if there were cameras in the courtroom, they wouldn't have seen it. So it wouldn't have mattered. And there's no way that a court uh, can award apology as one of the consequences of wrong behavior. They can award money. So even if it had not settled, even if it had gone to verdict, and even if they recouped more than the three quarters of a billion, they wouldn't have gotten an apology, which is, I think, what mm, people from the other point of view wanted was to have them say on their own shows, we lie to you, there is no fraud in the election, the election wasn't stolen, Donald Trump lost, Joe Biden won, fair and square. And that would have really satisfied me. But the lawyers represent a party. They don't represent the public interest and they got a good deal for their client. And that's what lawyers are hired to do. So we have to hold people accountable by turning it off by maybe his idea uh, or maybe not his idea. I'm going to call direct TV right after this. Exactly. And I think we should put the link that he mentioned on our show notes so that other people can call up and say, I don't want to pay a one penny to support the fake news of Fox news. Yes, absolutely. And there was actually a great piece also um, in NBC yesterday about how the $787.5 million, well, it's something. What will really kind of um, move Fox's, I guess, bottom line is this uh, these carriage costs and these um, fees uh, associated right. with the table. And so it's like if we can all do that, maybe they'll they'll start learning a lesson because that will actually impact their their bottom line. So um, hopefully we can all, all take some time and call I have DirecTV. I don't know what you have, Jill. Comcast or I have Comcast. Comcast. Yeah, so I, I will. I will do that because I didn't realize how big of a influence that might have. It's it. It won't if it's just you and me. But if yeah, that's right. It has to be everyone. And, and it every- has to be everyone. And then it, you know, it's only a few dollars to you, but a few dollars times millions of people. Yep. yep. That matters, and yes. that's a great idea because, again, I, I keep saying. Facts matter. And the way to get facts is to sometimes read things online and click through when it says so-and-so was indicted or makes an allegation that a letter was sent. 
click on it to read the letter. Don't take the reporter's interpretation. And that goes back to cameras. The reason that I like cameras is because otherwise I'm reading a reporter's interpretation of what was said. Right. I'm right. not seeing for myself and judging for myself. And that's why I think it's so important is that it would change how we feel about the outcome of various cases of instead of being mad, going, oh, man, that defendant really deserved to be held guilty. Uh, so or or that defendant really should have been, as he was, acquitted. Sometimes yeah. the evidence falls short. But I think. Obviously, based on what we've read of the evidence against Fox from Dominion and Smartmatic is saying they started it, they, uh, uh, Dominion, will finish it. We have a lot more to add to the efforts of Fox to take down our democracy. Yeah. So um, it should be very that's that's important thing to know is that there are so many other lawsuits pending and inve sorry investigations also pending into uh donald trump so this dominion case is not and dominion itself also has rudy giuliani Sidney powell mike lindell, lindell um uh oan newsmax so i mean there's there's a lot down the pipeline and so yeah. um and even today i i'm jill you i'm so assuming you saw, at least when we're recording this, Mike Lindell has to pay $5 million to this one person who he challenged to debunk his 2020 election lies. And this 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 panel forced him to pay $5 million. So um, maybe maybe he won't be on Fox anymore because he can't afford to pay advertisements. <laughs> uh, that would be an interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think $5 million is going to make the difference, but no, no. Uh, maybe we can hope. Well, yeah, we can uh, and we can hope that our audience pays attention to the facts and they vote on the facts. And that is really what matters. And of course, in a, a trial, the jury is sworn to make its decision based only on the facts presented in the courtroom. Right. And you know what there, there were how many 8000 documents that were going to be introduced. Yeah. That's an amazing number of documents. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we will talk about this more. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of iGen Politics. Um, we will be back next Tuesday uh, right here on youtube.com slash Politicon for another live episode or on Wednesday if you listen to us uh, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you follow your podcasts. Be sure to like and subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Angelo Caruso and that you'll tune in next week. We will see you all then.